0: With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select Campus miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Spentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids, Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit livenation.com slash concertweek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 seconds to Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club.
1: You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection, and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod Pina, who is covering the NBA playoffs for GQ 538. And your parents' website. He is everywhere. Michael, we have not (laughs) spoken since last Thursday, I believe. It was a long holiday weekend, and we appreciate the Open Floor Globe for hanging with us an extra day as everybody got in a little bit of R&R over the weekend. Needless to say, a lot has happened. So here's the plan, Michael. We're not going to be taking questions from the Open Floor Globe today. I have drafted four questions for each of the four series. We're going to try to run through them in rapid-fire order. That's always dangerous because you and I have no real concept for what rapid-fire is supposed to mean. We tend to, uh, you know, belabor our points. I think I speak on behalf of both of us. Even with this intro, Mm -hmm. I'm belaboring the entire idea of, of what's to come. But it's going to be four questions for each of the four series, try to get everybody caught up to speed on what was really a crazy four or five day stretch of basketball. There's only one place we can start. That is with the dismantling of the Milwaukee Bucks by the Miami Heat. They are down 3-1. Honestly, they should have been swept on Sunday. It's a miracle that they weren't. Chris Middleton comes through with some really clutch play after a Giannis Antetokounmpo ankle injury early. They wind up eking it out in overtime. They definitely saved some face with that game for win. They saved themselves, you know, a ridiculous uh, storm of criticism that would have come had they been swept out of the playoffs. But frankly, they may have just delayed it. Um, they will be playing Tuesday night with their season on the line, um, and, and we're still not sure of Giannis's status, which adds uh, another ominous element to this series. What I want you to do, Michael, for me in rapid-fire fashion, rank the top three people that we can blame for Milwaukee's 3-1 to one series deficit.
2: Wow. Uh, great way to... Uh to kick this off, Ben. Um,
1: No, look, I'm still frustrated. I'm still mad. Look, this is not how it was supposed to end. So we're we're not giving them any benefit of the doubt here. We're cutting straight to the chase. How did they find themselves the top-ranked team in the entire league, down 3-1, you know, clinging for their life, and really, at at times, humiliated in this series?
2: Right. So I I just have... I have three pretty, I think, obvious culprits here. I don't really know how to rank them. So we'll see if you agree or not. Um, My my number one, I'll just start there. I, I just go back to management and ownership and not paying Malcolm Brogdon. I think that that is the most significant uh cause for their demise and there's a lot of other things you can point to that would explain their struggles and we'll get into those as i go through number two and number three but well, on that one real quick just sure. if they had brogdon
1: and no Bledsoe during this series so not that they had kept both but if they could just swap those guys out right. don't you think that they would be up two one or at or sorry uh up three one or possibly two two at worst I mean, Brogdon's
2: excellent, and he... And Bledsoe is terrible. Like, let, I mean, that's part of it, too. <laughs> it's just... I mean, look, I think I think Eric Bledsoe has his moments. Um, he's not shooting the ball particularly well in this series. He, uh, in addition to not making shots, he takes some in spots that are just incoherent, at times where he'll just like rush the ball up the floor, take a elbow, contested elbow, pull up. No one's in position to get a rebound. The floor is all unbalanced. Um, And you're just kind of like, why, why are you doing that? Um, But at the same time, like he does provide some, some solid defense, some excellent defense at times. Uh, Michael, when you say he has his moments, is that sort of like on the
1: 4th of July when you put out a ground bloom flower and it just starts bouncing all over the concrete? You know what I'm talking about, right? And they just like, they fizz and they shoot out the colors in all different directions and nobody knows where the ground bloom flower is going to go. It's going to be so fun to watch this thing bounce around the cul-de-sac. That's how he plays basketball. There is no rhyme or reason to it. You're being very charitable with his shot selection. He puts his head down inside 30 feet. He And the problem is right now, he can't turn the corner on anybody. Like the athleticism no. stuff that he relied on earlier in his career is just not there. And he was injured and he was dealing with the coronavirus. So there's obviously extenuating circumstances. But this guy just throw, they're not even shots. Like he just kind of forklifts them up from his shoulder. You know, sometimes I feel like he's shooting with his elbow sometimes. I mean, it makes absolutely no sense what he's doing. And it's, crazy that they don't have anyone else that they can really go to to replace his minutes like you want to say hey you got to get this guy off the court and then you know again no brogdon like who who is the replacement piece their other their other options aren't particularly great either so you kind of close your eyes bear with his offense and hope that his defense is enough but it hasn't been
2: i mean in my head i'm just kind of like uh, you know, uh, Frank Mason, G League Player of the Year, like, come on down. Uh, I, like, it's it gets to that point for me sometimes mentally when I'm watching Eric Bledsoe take the shots that he takes.
1: So that um, would be a,
2: a roster red flag, right? I mean, if- <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. So that's why they're my number one. I mean, you lose a guy who, by the way, had a lot of success in the first round against this exact Miami Heat team, playing for the Indiana Pacers obviously his role would be different uh in Milwaukee but he just gives you something that Eric Bledsoe can't um in a just his stability his outside shooting um you know he he doesn't really take anything away on the defensive end either and he's a really quality solid playmaker off the bounce so that's my number one and I I don't know where you where you stand on that or if you had that in your top three um it's absolutely got to be in the top three who are your other two Number
1: two, I'm going with Giannis, and I agree. Uh, that might shock you, but I think okay. that a lot of their issues in this series start with him. Um, not to preempt too much of what you're saying, but the foul at the end of game two was on him. Um, mm-hmm. He looked like he was a deer in the headlights at key stretches of late game moments. He hasn't been that guy who can, um, you know, unlock Miami's defense. And then, of course, it's not his fault. Uh, but the ankle uh, injury weighs over everything as well.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I had I wrote down here Giannis slash Giannis's ankle because I mean, yeah, he not having it, uh, not being one hundred percent at the end of game three, I believe it was when he kind of twisted it at the in the first quarter, um, probably hampered his play a bit. But you know, when you're whole. Like, ethos is aggression and attacking the rim, and when you're on a bum wheel, you can't kind of resort to a more perimeter-oriented perimeter, perimeter oriented game where you're taking mid-range shots, you're backing guys down and kind of operating from the post, you're taking uh, spot-up threes with gravity. Uh, he's just not able to do any of those things. And that's, I mean, look, we, we've kind of talked about this a lot ad nauseum and uh you know his offensive flaws and his inability to create in the mid range and create his own shot when defenses kind of load up in the paint um but like he's also shooting 53 percent from the free throw line he's also taken 14 threes and some of them i guess you could say were not terrible decisions whatever um Some of them are just like, why did you take that? Like early shot clock settling. He he doesn't trust it either. That's the problem. I think he's he's overcompensating
1: when he takes those early shot clock ones because Mm -hmm. he knows he's supposed to be trying to shoot and he knows he's been working on that part of the game, so he doesn't want to ignore it. And Mm -hmm. even when he takes those, he doesn't trust it. I hate to make this comparison, but I think it's apt. It reminds me a lot of DeMar DeRozan, right? We hear all this talk. Oh, he's working out his three-pointers. He's working on his three-pointers. You get into clutch moments. Does he really trust it? Giannis' form was all over the place on his three-point shots in this series. It wasn't that smooth thing that he's been, or smoother, I should say, approach that he's been trying to work on. He was in his head about it, thinking about it. Um, I'm not trying to crush him because obviously they don't have the expectations. They're not even here without him, but he has not been, you know, to me, he's been like, B minus C plus in this series, and the 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 flashes in early Game Four where he's just playing so frantic, nineteen points in the first eleven minutes, or the third quarter of Game Three where he's really imposing his will on the series. Finally, for the first time, that's what they needed from Giannis to come out of the gate in Game Two. After they dropped game one, right? You needed to have that mm-hmm. crazy urgency takeover, like I'm not letting this series go away. And instead we just didn't get that. They were they were stunned. They were back on their heels. I fault Giannis a little bit for that, but I also fault Coach Bud for just really not having these guys ready, not really understanding <laughs> what was happening and and um, you know, we can get into that in a second. But uh, you know, I to me I, I think there's there's blame to be shared on that point.
2: Yeah, I think I kind of echo everything you said about Giannis there but um, was not expecting you to break out the DeMar DeRozan comp like I don't I'm trying to think of like a, a a good analogy, but basically, you comparing your favorite thing to your least favorite thing is what we just <laughs> what we just heard, which is pretty funny. I know it's like God, this chocolate ice cream tastes a lot like Brussels sprouts,
1: <laughs> uh, something like um, that. Yeah, no, I look. It's these are dark times for uh, you know the founder of Giannis Inc. over here. His stock has been rising consistently for seven straight years. There has really never been a moment. Um, you know, and they had a couple seasons there where they were expected to make the playoffs, maybe one season where they fell back and didn't. Obviously, there was a, you know, a big disappointment last year when they're up 2-0 and they wind up losing that series but this is easily if they lose this series this is easily the biggest disappointment of Giannis's career and it's the first time he and the Bucks have ever really regressed since he's gotten there and that has major implications for Giannis's future it has you know implications for uh, coach Bud's job status it has implications for how do you try to retool the roster there's going to be blowback on the front office um, and management, in large part, because this whole thing was set up for Giannis to be the hero. And as I said, you know, you know, B minus C plus doesn't get you over the top. That's that's not exactly heroic, right? And um, he he has to bear his share of the responsibility. And the shooting stuff is is central to it. I mean, you look at his shot chart. Basically, everything he's doing is around the basket area. And I always want to give him credit. Some of his critics don't for how well he's able to create those opportunities around the basket, how well he's able to finish those opportunities. Um, you know, he is a, a real physical force and it's not just power. It's also intelligence to get to those spots and um, and improve ball handling and improved, you know, spatial recognition and, and, and defensive, uh, you know, unlocking and all that kind of stuff. But if you can't, you know, be a consistent threat from outside 10 feet and the work you've put into doing that, disappears when you need it most that is very very difficult uh to work around for an organization for a team and it's also you know basically uh, you know it falls on your shoulders there's nobody else to blame
2: right you need an audible you need a plan b and this kind of brings us to my number third my number three uh person to blame here and it that better is be coach the coach it, yeah it, I was it, 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 it is coach bud um uh, Sterling Brown was my my initial choice, but then I had to pivot away to Coach Bud. No, uh, it's always been Coach Bud. Um, I'm not as harsh on him, I think, as a lot of people have been. He is rigid. He is kind of stuck in how he wants to play, and you see against this Miami Heat team, and it might just be just it might just be poor luck. It might just be. Um, a bad matchup, but uh, on the other hand, like if you were matched up against the Celtics or the Raptors in this round, like those teams are also uh, equipped defensively and offensively to attack your style of play in a seven-game series. So I don't want to give too much credence to that, but like, well, let me but, ask you. Let me ask you sure. if if we traded coaches in
1: this series and the rosters were the same, I'm going to give you a healthy Giannis. Does
2: the Spo led Bucks beat the Bud led Heat. The Bud led Heat, um, look, Bam Adebayo is not an All Star. Duncan Robinson did not have the best three point shooting season. Um, one of the best three point shooting seasons that we've ever seen. Uh, Tyler Hero is probably playing eight minutes a game. Um, so, no, I-, I think that if Spo had the reins in Milwaukee they would look similar to how they, I I think we would have probably seen some more versatility during the regular season in terms of just switch actions uh, on the defensive end and uh, a little more breadth to how they play and guard and and just their schemes and their coverages. But I think that the damage would be done uh, in in Miami with Bud there, and I don't know how they would play. (laughs) Um, So here's
1: here's evidence of you being just such a polite and nice guy, because you've been defending Bud for the past week, and you just laid out in very (laughs) rational terms exactly (laughs) his impact on this series, where he's basically costing them the whole thing. I'm glad that you said it. I agreed with what you said. And here's the tricky part. Here's why it's it's a big deal for Milwaukee. They're trying to appeal to Giannis. Giannis has kind of consistently said, I wanna stay in Milwaukee. I wanna be that, that uh, one organization superstar level player. But when you're lining up what Milwaukee has going on right now, compared to other teams who are gonna be trying to get into the mix for a trade or to sign him in free agency down the road, it's a really tough sell. You start with ownership. Hey, we've got some hedge fund billionaires. That sounds good. Well, they're not willing to pay the luxury tax to keep Brogdon. Oh, oh, well, they're not, you know, what would Steve Ballmer do? Oh, well, they're not doing that. That's that's a problem. You look at the front office. Hey, they're making savvy veteran additions, you know, who fit around Giannis. Well, do they have another playmaker to replace Brogdon, you know, which is a huge and key hole? Did they foresee where the, the sport was going to go, um, you know, whether, you know, over the course of the regular season or, or heading forward in the bubble or after the bubble? Well, no, not really, because now... Uh, you know, Bledsoe is basically useless, and he's on a long-term contract. And the only real playmaker they have is Giannis. Well, that that doesn't seem great. You look at Coach Bud. Well, if you flop him in with uh, you know his competition in the playoffs, the team would be extraordinarily better, and he would be damaging the opposition. Well, that that doesn't seem so great. You know, you do that checklist if you're a player about hey, what are we looking for? You know, for for t- how to spend my prime years. And, you know, this is not exactly looking like, you know, a fancy steakhouse there in Milwaukee. This is starting to look more like a fast food restaurant a little bit.
2: It's okay. I mean, you're a a little critical. And I think that as you approach as a small market team, my hopes have been shattered, okay? (laughs) (laughs) I was expecting a finals right here for these guys and they're letting me down hard. Well, you should have been watching Jason Tatum this whole time and your your expectations would have been tempered. But I want to just say that, As you are building around a guy like Giannis as a small market team, it's like you want to balance future flexibility with with how strong you're building your team in the here and now and the present as he approaches that contract extension decision, right? So you kind of are in a – I guess like it's an impossible situation because if you – if you kind of are more patient and you keep more doors open going forward, I like, but at the same time you're kind of like Giannis, if you stay with us, and I know we've been let's uh, we've been knocked out of the. The playoffs in the first or the second round this whole time, uh, but we have all this cap space, we have these assets, and going forward, like from year twenty-six to thirty-one of your career, like we're gonna make some serious moves and we're gonna win some titles. That's a little bit of a harder sell, I think, and it's a really complicated, just team-building uh, conundrum, I think, and so I want to just point that out as we're kind of just bashing the Milwaukee Bucks organization
1: look it is it is tough but look this guy fell in their lap they deserve credit for developing him but the entire challenge is to kind of set things up for him to have that long-term sustained success that's their whole deal and if it's you know resulting in a five-game exit in the second round uh, that's not good enough and I I do think if you're trying to paint this vision here's how we're going to build around you if you're Giannis, isn't your natural counter going to be like, "Hey guys, um, just just one quick follow-up: Am I ever going to be able to play more than 36 minutes in a must-win playoff game, or am I going to just have to watch Dante Divincenzo decide my season? Right? And then what's your answer there? And I I don't I, look. I know people are going to say, "Oh, it's an easy you know low-hanging fruit to go after Coach Bud on the minutes." His philosophy makes absolutely no sense, Michael. After game three, he tells us, oh, there's a ceiling. Giannis and Chris Middleton can't play above 36 minutes. They're expending so much energy. It's just impossible to play these guys more than that, right? You look around the playoffs, obviously, other really quality organizations, you know, uh, Toronto Raptors with Kyle Lowry, Lakers with Anthony Davis, whoever it might be. And you look back throughout history, Jordan lebron all these guys have played way more than 36 minutes in the playoffs right i've been banging this drum for more than a year that this is just kind of out of step with how everybody else is doing it right but if you're smart enough to have cracked the code and you understand uh, better than everyone else how energy management is supposed to work fine we better see it play off in this series and it hasn't um at all and then you look at game four And they're, you know, seasons at stake, obviously. And what does Coach Bud do? He throws the ceiling out and he plays Middleton, I think, 48 minutes in an overtime game, right? And he really has no explanation for why he did that other than, well, we needed to win the game. Guess what, Coach Bud? You needed to win game one, two, and three as well. And playing your main guys and having them ready to play bigger minutes absolutely would have helped. That's on him. And I do want to just highlight one dilemma here as I'm freaking out. Giannis pointed out after game one that it was Coach Bud's decision that he did not switch on to Jimmy Butler late. Mm-hmm. He basically said, look, Coach Bud, uh, you know why would you ask me that question? He told the reporter, um, I'm going to do whatever Coach Bud wants me to do. After game two, he was asked, well, why aren't you playing more? And he says, that's Coach Bud's decision. I'm going to do whatever Coach Bud wants me to do. So he is being a team player, which is in his nature, right? But he's also kind of subtly distancing himself from these major decisions that are impacting the series. He's letting the entire world and the front office and ownership know, I don't control who I get to guard. I don't control how many minutes I play. There's only one person responsible for those decisions. And that's why I do think that Coach Bud's in a very precarious spot right now, right? And I guess I'm asking you, if if, um, Milwaukee loses Game 5... Is that it for Coach Bud? Does he have to fall on the sword here because of those fundamental decisions and and Milwaukee needing to give a, a an answer or, or give some, uh, you know, a fall guy to Giannis for uh, this disappointment?
2: I love how we are two questions in and we've already, we're like on minute 21 right now or something like that. The rapid fire is out the window.
1: Technically, we're three questions in because my second question, (laughs) which I forgot to explicitly say, was Can you explain Coach Bud's approach to minutes? And the answer there was just no and me yelling for five minutes. So we're on to question three here, which is If they go down, are you ready to fire Coach Bud? And obviously, he's had a great run there, you know, two incredible Uh seasons but is he now the coach who's holding Giannis back?
2: Look, first to address the minutes thing, and you kind of touched on it a little bit with how Bud treated everybody in game four, but I just want to point out that Middleton is averaging almost 10 more minutes than he did during the regular season. Brooke Lopez is almost averaging 10 more minutes than he did during the regular season, and so is George Hill. So Giannis is the most important guy here, right? And his minutes are not... Up from the regular season, which you know, there's a factor there with the the injury and him leaving in the first half, etc. But like Yeah. Um so I just want to point that out real quick. Oh yeah, no, and- it's it's a
1: great point, and also we should point out Giannis plays so hard he tires out. And I think that's a factor. Like they want to play him in bursts for a logical reason because you know he is sucking wind at times, but that goes back to preparation from the coaching staff. The most important thing you could do coming into this season is is having Giannis feel like he's comfortable and capable of playing 44 minutes in a playoff game. And that's going to be on him for sure. But if you set the standard of like, hey, bud, we're just going to be chilling here, playing you 30 minutes a night uh, all season long, that ramp up is tough. And these guys are so bought in. I mean, Bud holds so much and wields so much influence in that organization that they really just do whatever he says. And Bud is steering them off
2: a cliff. Yeah. Well, you know, what's less uh, tiring than driving through the stomach of a defense and dunking the ball in every play? It's taking two dribbles and pulling up from the elbow. And so I put a little bit of this on Giannis, to be honest, when we I talk do, about... I do,
1: too. I do, too. Yeah. But I mean, look, again, it goes back. If you had... Sp- Spolster would have him ready to play 44 minutes in a playoff game. Bottom line. Well,
2: no question. Yeah, <laughs> no question. What, what,
1: don't you think Brad would? Don't you think Nurse would?
2: Yeah. No, I mean if you just okay, look at so how Tirono- a okay, so okay. You're a you. firing
1: butt is my point. Right? No,
2: absolutely. no, absolutely not. Um I think that in this situation, perfect is the enemy of very good. And like at the end of the day, they probably would have won it all last year if Chris Middleton makes an open three at the end of regulation in game three and they're already up two o. Like there's just all these different margins where we are I think we're overreacting a little bit to Bud and what's going on right now. And keep in mind, we are in the bubble and everything is strange and weird and all that. But, like, Bud did implement this system that had them on a 70-win track. Um Giannis has won two MVPs with him as the coach. I don't think we can discount all of this. And it's not Bud's decision to let Malcolm Brogdon go, right? So I think, like... I can't just fire Bud, who I thought was one of the three best coaches in the NBA this season. And like, look, maybe he is. It's really easy to kind of criticize uh, his flaws, particularly when the spotlight's on him and the stakes are higher. But like, I'm not. I'm not going away from Bud at all. I don't. I don't think that would be a smart move. So you said, "Perfect is the enemy of very good," right? Yes. You know,
1: Milwaukee's empty hands are the enemy of the Larry O'Brien trophy, right? I mean, what are they doing out here? They're trying to win a title. You can't, you know, know, fall back on, hey, moral victories, congratulations, you guys looked pretty awesome during January. Um... Look, it's tricky because they don't have a lot of other buttons to push. They don't have a lot of young prospects they could cash in and trade. They don't have great draft picks. They need to win right now. They're under the gun from a timing perspective. They can't really expect much more from Middleton, who I think has been strong in this series. They cannot hope that Bledsoe is going to turn his career around. Look, he's three years straight now with terrible postseason performances they're stuck. They don't have a really great move to make. They if they could do anything it would be a time machine to, you know, pull Brogdon back into the fold, they certainly can't do that. How difficult will it be for them to find a Brogdon-level talent over the next 3 years? I would be stunned if they were able to find one. Uh, you know, everybody's hoping for this, you know, Chris Paul miracle trade. I'm not sure that's going to be taking place, you know, given how much Oklahoma City uh, enjoyed having him there uh, this past season. They're stuck. And I think that if your ownership, your head is spinning, you can't believe this is how it played out. You're nervous about Giannis and you need to send a message to Giannis. If you don't fire Coach Bud, the message to Giannis is, hey, bro, we're just kind of hoping you could fix this for us. And that's a terrible message heading into free agency. So, um, you know, I I think, you know, push comes to shove. I would probably pin this one on Coach Bud and, uh, you know, just hope that a, a different... Leadership voice could help take Giannis over the hump next season. I don't know if that would actually be possible. We've talked about some of the inherent flaws to his game and and, and to their roster, but it does feel like something needs to give here. Otherwise, uh, you know, I don't I don't know what your pitch is to Giannis. I think it gets pretty dark next season. All right, let's tie off this series with one charity question to the uh, Miami Heat. You know, the team that's actually going to be winning it uh, most mm-hmm. likely. Michael, do you buy them as a title threat? I know to win, they would have to get through, most likely, your Boston Celtics. So this puts you into a tricky predicament. But how much have they showed here um, in, in their series against Milwaukee that either you know goes past just exploiting what the Bucks are doing and actually says, hey, we're, we're announcing our arrival here in this title conversation?
2: I think you you have to buy them as a title threat because they're they've just defeated the top-seeded Milwaukee Bucks and they're going to be most likely in the the conference finals. So from there, I do think that they could beat either the Raptors or the Celtics. Um, I think they have enough shooting. They have enough ball handling uh, they have enough scoring, their defense is super versatile, and Bam Adebayo creates a ton of matchup problems for just about anybody, and I think Jimmy Butler has shown that he can put a team on his back when he wants to. Um, I don't think... So, it, I mean, it's, it's possible, but would it be likely? Like, let, let me ask you this.
1: Rank, Miami, Boston, and the two LA teams. Those are the four most likely teams to, uh, to be wow, in the final leaving threat. out
2: the Houston Rockets, geez Louise.
1: Well, look, I mean, if you can find a weaker link than Russell Westbrook right now in the entire league, I'd like to see <laughs> it. But um no, I mean, let's just you know, those are the teams that are up in their series, right? Or I guess the Lakers are are technically tied. But I feel like Game Two should have counted as two losses for uh, Houston, first on the scoreboard and second for playing Westbrook okay, during okay, crunch time. Okay. you'll have your but, time
2: to get through this. Let's 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 go back to the main the main point here.
1: Right. Um so would Miami be fourth in that group?
2: Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Although I you know So why have... are we
1: so disrespectful to the Heat? That's what I'm asking. Because I feel the same way. But well, so, they they they've probably had the most impressive of any second round series of, of any team so far, right? I mean I what would yeah, what would no, be guess... the other option? They've they've dismantled Milwaukee. So is this just a case of us? Like the, the action is happening in front of our eyes and we're just so stuck on the, the previous expectations for the Heat group that we're not catching up. Is there something about how they're doing it that f- is fool's gold, right? And they're going to get exposed by Boston down the road. Was it just a good matchup? Like what accounts for that disparity between their results and our perception?
2: No, I mean, look. We just spent twenty plus minutes trashing the Bucks and blaming them for why this series fell apart. So I think you got to look at the opponent a little bit here. Now I want to—that's not to take credit away from Miami, but um, that's like a factor that can't be overlooked. And I think when you have a team that just is unwilling to make adjustments uh, from game to game, really, um, that's. Kind of to your advantage if you're Eric Spolstra and the Miami Heat. Um, so uh, the matchup is the matchup, and they've really taken <laughs> advantage of it. Um, so we, we
1: found one guy who's as damaging as Russell Westbrook, and his name is Mike <laughs> Boonholzer. No, that That's well said, Michael. Let's um, let, let's tie off the conversation for that series uh, right there. I think that we're pretty much aligned on Miami's prospects going forward. You know, we are, you know, running a little bit behind here, so maybe we could just give like two or three minutes total to what Boston is doing here because God, through gritted teeth, you're an evil have person. To, do I have to give the Celtics <laughs> credit, Michael? I gotta say their game five against Toronto was the most impressive playoff game I've seen any team play this year. Um, And it, you know, I mean, this is just agonizing. You know, I'm like the uh, that little emoji with the throw-up, you know, the green uh, puke coming out of his mouth. That's me talking right now. But what can I say? You know, I've got to give credit where it's due. Um, Did you feel like that Game 5 kind of encapsulated Boston's championship case? Like, did they just show... That look, they don't have the Kawhi or the LeBron. That's obviously, you know, they don't have a guy who's been there and done that. But if you look down the checklist, they cover pretty much every other box, which you need for a title team, right?
2: Well, yeah. I I mean, the way that you just described Boston is how I look at Miami, actually, where they don't have that super alpha scorer who can kind of take you home. Um, When I look at Boston, like, I, you know, I, I'm not gonna say that I expected a wire to wire blowout in Game Five. Like I was, I was pretty nervous. Just the fan in me was a little jittery heading into that game after what happened in Game Three and Game Game Four. Um, but that said, like they've always been a title contender in my eyes. I mean, just statistically, the top five offense, top five defense. Tatum's uh, emergence, Jalen Brown should have been or could have been an All Star. Uh, Kemba Walker looks so good. I mean, last night he was probably the best player in that game, I want to say, besides Jalen. I mean, Kemba Kemba is excellent. And so when you have a, a situation where Tatum, who's your primary guy who has been struggling scoring the basketball, I think for the past two games, uh, to have someone like Kemba who you can just like, give the keys to, and he just will efficiently dice up the defense, Um, that's a luxury that I think a a, a true championship contender needs. And so I've kind of always thought that they were at this status, and uh, not having Gordon Hayward at all for this series, or really since, you know, game one of the postseason, and just how important he's been to how they want to play, uh, that's been doubly impressive to me and just kind of further emboldens the idea that they are... I think 538 has them as the favorite right now to win it all, and I don't really Man. think that that is outrageous. I don't know. I, I almost view the Hayward thing as addition
1: by subtraction because it gave them all their lineup clarity, right? It's like, hey, here's your five guys. Here's who is going to matter. Those five guys fit great. I want to give a shout-out to Tice. Um, He's for, great. You know, he, he was he got the job done against Embiid making him work in the first round and then he's tracking all over the court defensively against the Raptors bigs who present a lot of challenges by going out to the perimeter so much and he's he's handling that responsibility too. He plays with great activity. Um, you know, I just think he's one of the more unheralded guys kind of left in this mix and you know, we talk all t- all the time centers in trouble. How are they going to survive and everything else? And he's been um, you know, quite plucky and, and very helpful to what they're doing. Um, your point on the offensive distribution is an important one. Nobody cares who's getting shots unless it's Kemba not shooting enough. That's like the only time people are like, hey, we got to make sure he's involved, right? Otherwise, if Tatum's a leading scorer, Brown's a leading scorer, Kemba's a leading scorer, no one really cares. It's not, you know, people aren't tallying, you know, shots and touches and whose offense is it and alpha and all of that. That's just not the Celtics vibe. And I think, you know, that can be really valuable. I mean, we've seen other teams win titles with that kind of a, you know, a balanced offensive approach. Obviously, San Antonio 2014 is probably the one that jumps to mind more than like, you know, the Warriors or whoever else where they had some really big, explosive, like high profile scores. But having an environment where everyone is committed to playing defense constantly and you have the number one postseason defense right now and an offense where people aren't saying my turn, your turn, and you just kind of stick with it and whoever's got it going, they get to have it going. It's a good place to be right now. Um, I'm, you know, I've I've definitely uh, been scared straight. You know, I think I had my moment staring <laughs> down the uh, the train in Game Five. Look, it was a. It's been a really fun series because OG Anobi's shot was exactly the kind of moment, and also Toronto's response in Game Four, where Kyle Lowry just pulls out every veteran trick in the book and brings that one home, mm-hmm. where it's two two. <laughs> Like if Boston was going to crumble, if the fact that they had never won a title before was going to get exposed and they were going to get sort of big brothered by a team – Game 5 was the moment for that to happen, right? Lowry comes back out, let's say he starts strong and now they're starting to get in their heads. Are we really this good? You know, we've never done it. We don't have and none of our main guys have that much postseason experience. Maybe Kemba starts having flashback to Michael Jordan spitting his cigars out in disgust after first round exits. Like <laughs> all the ghosts of the past kind of come back, right? Yeah. But it was exactly the opposite, right? It was like, "Hey, we're punking you early. We're never letting you back in this game. We're gonna beat you so badly that Ibaka and Lowry are yelling at each other about uh, Lowry's complaining to the officials, and that after the game, Nick Nurse feels it necessary to, you know, take a little swipe at Pascal Siakam and try to motivate him for Game Six because he realizes that if Pascal doesn't play better." They've got no shot. They're going home, right? I mean, that is what a championship-type team does. You know, it just wears down the opponents by a lack of mistakes, by consistency, and by focus. And Boston did all those things again. Like, I could, I just want to puke listening to the sound of my own voice. But it, <laughs> no, it just it has, to, it has to be said. So here's another question for you, though. I don't want to forget about uh, that Ananobi shot because that was a classic, man. That was a really fun playoff moment in game three. I mean, Taco Fall guarding the inbounder just adds to the the legend of that pass from Lowry. It's just an amazing pass, an amazing catch and shoot shot. It happened in the empty gym, but I didn't even really notice the empty gym as much because of just how magical that, uh, that particular moment was. I'm just curious, in hindsight, how scared were you when he hits that? I mean, did that feel like the moment where it's like, you know, this is a, you know, a BS win for Toronto, they just pulled out uh, of nowhere. And that could have like a, you know, a repercussion type effect where, you know, it just sinks Boston spirit. I mean, how worried were you when you watched that go through? And and what did you make of the shot and his reaction?
2: I think I I texted you. Well, first of all, you texted me right after that shot went in with some just unnecessary trash talk. And I responded. Oh,
1: no, no. I just sent you some passport
2: paperwork to fill out. You know, <laughs> hey, we're all, we're all Canadians now, Michael. And I responded. Um,. By saying something along the lines of, yeah, they let, they made that mistake on purpose so that they could let the series drag on so that Gordon Hayward would be back by the conference finals. And I was, I don't know if it came across in the text, but I was 100% bluffing. I was. Yeah, false bravado (laughs) is
1: what they call that, Michael.
2: I was very, very nervous. Um, You just don't wanna, like, if you can go up 3 0. And you're up to with 0.5 seconds left and you don't close the deal like that is it's devastating, especially as you as you alluded to a team that has not uh, been to the mountaintop that does not necessarily have championship experience that, uh, you know, you just want to see how they would respond. And then, you know, game four happens. And I thought that that was kind of a, a kitchen sink game by by Kyle Lowry and by some of the other guys on that team. Uh, Pascal really came through in that one um, for the first time in the series and the only time in the series. Um, but basically, like, yeah, that shot falls through. I mean, my wife was reading in our bedroom, and I, I walked in and just kind of stood in the doorway, and she looked up at me and thought someone passed away. So in the moment, I was pretty devastated. Uh, the I, I next thought you were going to say you threw her book out the window <laughs> or something. <laughs> uh, you know, like, I I look at it in hindsight as – it was, it's truly an incredible play. Like the pass, everyone said what they need to say about the pass, which is just like one of the best sideline ba- side out of bounds, inbounds that I've ever seen in my whole life. Um, OG to catch and just get the shot off with Jalen closing out hard. Um, I mean, it's like the degree of difficulty is like, how many times is that going to be executed? It's incredible. Um, On the other end, like, I also still can't help myself from seeing the defensive breakdown and Jalen just losing it and not knowing where he was supposed to be. And it's so weird because the Celtics... You know, people were kind of criticizing Brad Stevens for going zone on that play. The Celtics, basically, since Brad Stevens has been hired, have gone zone to defend sideline and baseline out of bounds plays. So it's like, it's completely nothing new. There was no excuse for the mistake. Um, I saw some criticism of Jason Tatum for leaving uh, OG, um, but like it was a zone. So no, that was not the case. Um, Can I defend Jalen for one second? I think he he was worried about the lob to Gasol
1: at the rim right? And I think that, you know, I think Tice was beat by maybe like a step or a, maybe three quarters of a step. And so I think that Jalen was concerned. And it's funny because like, oh yeah, are we really going to see Marcusell flying through the air to like dunk an alley Like, I mean, at this stage of his career, probably not. But I think that's why he stayed tucked in. And I'm not sure he ever thought that cross-court pass was possible. I also want to give him credit for the hard closeout, you know, once he realized what was going on. Of course, he's, you know, uh, a second late there. Um, yeah. I wonder if you could redo the whole thing. Do you just take Taco off the court and find a I way was, to stash your yeah. fifth guy?
2: Yeah, 100%. Like I was going to tweet right after, but I had to just basically put my phone in the toilet um, that I am on team do not guard the inbounder for the rest of my life, and that's basically <laughs> where we're at. Like, Well, I what just... about this
1: idea? What about this idea? What if he had just stationed Taco in front of the rim... Rather than uh, you know in front of the inbounder, so that way you don't have to worry about
2: so Jalen G- would be Gasol in the at all. Yeah, yeah, so no.
1: so you you're just hugging tight on everybody around the perimeter, and you're just saying Taco, you're our designated swatter if this ball comes yeah. anywhere near the rim, and and then now you've got the an extra body to chase. Probably uh, probably you're worried most about I guess Van Vliet in that situation. So maybe you're kind of like you know doubling Van Vliet and. Right. Yeah, that's probably how I would have done it. But, you know, I mean, look, Brad can learn from us probably. I'm I'm sure he's listening to
2: this. I'm sure he's taking notes right now as we speak. Um, So, yeah, I mean, great shot. I'm kind of, you know, excited about about how it's turned out, and I would not be able to have this conversation if the Celtics did not win game five um, because I'm a sore loser.
1: Here's my next question for you, and it's Uh a quick one. Um, I'm going to ask an answer, and you tell me if you agree. Was there anything else Toronto could have done in this series to kind of be in a different spot, to not be down, uh, you know, 3 2 headed into game six? My answer is no. I think they've pretty much maxed out who they were. I think that Boston's wins have been more impressive. I mean, other than, you know, smart going crazy um, in, in, uh, what was it, game two, I feel like everything has been really, really well earned from Boston's side. I think. Uh, you know, obviously you want better play from Siakam, but you know he's in a tough spot right now. You can't just flip that switch. He's obviously trying. You've got an incredible play from Lowry. I think actually incredible play from Ibaka too. The series would be over, I think, if Ibaka hadn't been playing as well as he has uh, through, through stretches of this series. So I, you know, I think they're just, you know, I think Boston is, uh, you know, a half cut above Toronto and I didn't see it coming. Obviously I picked the Raptors in this series. I think they've played kind of everything that they can play. And, you know, if, if Siakam mm-hmm. finally gets going, maybe they can force it to seven. Um, but the series would be over if OG doesn't hit that crazy shot. And, um, you know, I think ultimately Boston, Boston's just been steadier.
2: Boston's better. Um, I will say about Toronto... You know, if you look at second spectrum, they have this shot quality statistic, which basically tells you what your effective field goal percentage should be based on the shots that you're taking and how the defense is playing you and who's taking them, etc. Um, and they have one of the highest shot qualities uh, in the second round, but they just are not hitting anything. So if you're a Raptors fan, that is a source of optimism for possibly turning this around. I mean... Nurse like, was saying that exact thing. You're right on the money,
1: Michael. And he looked like he was ready to pull his hair out. You know, I don't know if he needs to <laughs> needs to get that guitar out and play some upbeat stuff and just kind of get his mood back on the other direction. But he was just, you know, they had like, a, what, 11 points in the first quarter. And he was like, our offense was actually really good. Like, he's like, we got so many good shots. He just couldn't believe it.
2: Yeah, 100%. I mean, I'm watching the game live and... I just expect, you know, when Fred VanVleet takes a pull-up, that's a pretty good look. I expect it to fall. I expect Norm Powell to hit his spot-up threes. I expect, I don't know, like Kyle Lowry is just not, you know, I, I we can't really ever go back to the pre-champion Kyle Lowry, but, like, shooting the ball, that's kind of what he's been in this series. He's not been very effective shooting the basketball. Um But like, yeah, I don't know what else they could do besides hit shots. I think that, you know, if I were Nick Nurse, I'd probably ramp up the pressure even more with my guys. I mean, it's now or never. I mean, we're talking full court zones and we're trapping Kemba in the middle of the floor when they run those double screens, those high stagger screens. Um, A lot of this is easier said than done, and I think that it puts a, a huge strain on the guys that... Already are playing humongous minutes for you. And also, you know, Serge Ibaka, I think, was in a walking boot today at their media session. He doesn't know if he's going to play in game six. Uh, Mark Gasol could not be on the floor for all of these aggressive tactics? which is I a think Marcus question. Sol is,
1: I think he's actually playing with two walking boots on, uh, I think <laughs> based on his mobility level. Um, so yeah, they're in trouble. Look, if, if Ibaka is not back and right, they're in, in deep, deep trouble. Um, hey, last question here on this particular series. Um, if Boston holds off Toronto and they face mm-hmm. Miami in the next round, What's your prediction there? Give me one key X factor and the the matchup you're most looking forward to watching, because I think if you go one to
2: five, there's interesting matchups the whole way through, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm taking Celtics and six, and I feel like I'm going to be belaboring the point, but the Celtics are just so different from Milwaukee. And I think like Boston, and I feel like this way about Boston with Toronto as well, where they basically, you know, they're holding up a mirror to their opposition, but they just are more talented because of Tatum and Jalen and Kemba. I don't think that Miami has those types of offensive weapons. I think Tatum would still be the best player in the series, and conversely, like... I mean, I don't don't even think it comes down to Tatum versus Butler, who's the best player, because
1: I just look at Boston's personnel, and I think there's so much Better designed to take away guys like Hero and Duncan Robinson than Milwaukee was, right?
2: 100%. And so if, you know, if Jay Crowder is shooting 85% behind the three point line and uh, Tyler Hero looks like vintage Mike Conley, then sure, then Miami is where we have a different conversation to be had. But I also like, I was trying to look at some film and get a little bit ahead of myself here. And it's like if you're Boston, you have no tape to really look at in terms of how you've performed against this Heat team, because during the regular season and your, your couple matchups, like Myers Leonard was at the five. Myers Leonard's out of the rotation now. Um, and so they're a completely different team. I mean, like James Johnson was on the floor for significant minutes in one of those contests. Um, so I think it's just it's going to be really fun if those two teams do match up. And I'm fascinated to see who Jimmy Butler defends and whether or not he can really limit either Tatum or Jalen, because he's going to be on one of them and just hounding one of them the entire series. Uh, so that'll be very fascinating to watch play out. And then on the other end, I don't know who like who's going to guard Kemba Walker. And you know when they do run, I just keep plugging the story I wrote because I just feel like it's really relevant. And I'm just going to... Tap myself on the shoulder, but like as the Celtics continue to run this uh, high stagger screen for Kemba, which is, I mean, it makes their offense unguardable. Like if you're Miami, um, are you going to switch that and put Bam on Kemba and then leave yourself potentially vulnerable in the paint with a different matchup? Or just how do you guard that? Because I think that that is the head of the snake in a lot of ways to Boston's offense. And Bam is so unique where. Like I don't think he could shut down Kemba in space, but he's not <laughs> like Mark Gasala or Serge Ibaka out there, for sure. I think that's that is a key matchup to um, to circle Kemba
1: versus you know Miami's defensive strategy on him. I also think another one is like Duncan Robinson, Tyler Hero, and um, you know Jay Crowder versus reasonable expectations right I just I, those guys have been playing well and, and helping um, you know mm-hmm. Miami for sure against Milwaukee do those guys come back to earth I think that's a another key one to uh, to keep an eye on um, look my heart um, it will be taking heat in five. Um, just to mess with you oh my god no hey (laughs) slow down slow down that was just my heart's pick my head's pick is right there with you celtics and six and it's it's painful um and look i mean if my first book has to be celebrating a boston celtics title which only happened like once every 30 years it's going to be pretty pretty rough so um, I guess I'm there with Pitbull and Rick Ross in the um, the Heat fan cheering section. Let's let's go. Dale, Dale, Miami, Dale. All right, let's shift gears to the Western Conference here quickly, Michael. Um of course my tongue's in my cheek here. I hope everybody realizes that. Um have you ever seen an MVP play a worse game than Russell Westbrook in game two? <laughs> just let's just frame it properly the foul trouble thing was just ridiculous. I mean, they give up just such a string of uncontested baskets when he had five fouls. As he put it, I was just running all over the place, Michael, and I've had a long-standing uh, maxim that says, uh, mm-hmm. do you want to play with purpose or a purpose? And the guy who actually inspired this maxim was Russell Westbrook, because he plays with purpose. He plays hard. He does run around a lot. But does he play with a purpose? Is there a vision or an overarching uh, theory to what he's trying to do? Is he, um, you know, playing smart or is he just playing hard? And I think game two highlighted that maxim better than any other game of his career. It was just an utter disaster. He knew it. He understood it. I mm-hmm. do not understand how Houston did not pull him from that game um, late or or just try something else. I realize Austin Rivers. I thought didn't they were going really to, yeah they really should have and and Rivers didn't play well either so that's probably part of it but i think the big part of it is the superstar expectations the ego and, and that stuff is driving that decision um have you ever seen a player damage his team more in a playoff game who who was an mvp level guy
2: uh not really um you know it's funny cuz you add context here and it's like okay russ if you are on the floor and no one's guarding you and you're shooting threes and missing them, then that's, that's not great. That's not what you want, but it's, it's not a worst case scenario like you dribbling the ball off your foot and creating like six or seven live ball turnovers against a team that can't score in the half court and needs those transition opportunities to thrive. No, he should have Um, just shot the ball into his own basket. Punt it. Just just just, punt the ball out of bounds. Like, hit a digital (laughs) fan in the face. Like, it's better, honestly.
1: You know, Michael, everybody says P.J. Tucker is a smart guy. He does the little things right and everything else. That's usually true. I think in the fourth quarter, he actually should have shoved Westbrook into LeBron, causing a sixth foul, because that would have been the best move for their team, right? Westbrook fouls out. You could just play without him for the last eight
2: minutes, and you're fine. It's... It was such a bad game. I mean, the turnovers were, and the decision making was more than anything. But like, it's so clear to me that his quad is just not right. He does not look even close to as explosive as he normally does or did. I should say, like seven or eight months ago, whenever he was looking like an MVP candidate and the best player on the team. Um, You know, the Lakers. And and he
1: also he also tested positive for the coronavirus. In his defense, I mean, that's another thing too. Is that throws off everything, and so. You know, I'm, I'm bringing it a little bit to uh, probably too hot in this situation. But like I said, I mean, I'm sitting right there watching this meltdown from 15 feet away and it really hurt to watch. I mean, it was almost to the point where I was like, can I just get, you know, like tinted sunglasses so that I can have like maybe just a little bit less of this impact, right? Because there's something that can like ease this burden on my eyes.
2: No, <laughs> I think like when we talk about the, the quad injury that kept him out of... um significant time earlier on in the bubble uh, and forced him to miss about half of that first round series, like those possessions where uh, the Lakers will double him, well, uh, excuse me, the Lakers will double Harden in isolation and use Russ's uh, man to come over and help. Um, When James kind of swings Russ the ball and he settles for those threes, which he was not doing earlier in the season, he was attacking that space either before the pass or uh, uh, and being kind of this force on the move on a cut or catching and just going and attacking the rim and like he clearly doesn't trust his body right now that's what that tells me because he's taking threes if you just go back and watch them that are they just don't make any sense like they're bad shots you're wide open for a reason like you're not Lou Dort you're Russell Westbrook you should be attacking that space and making things happen out of it forcing the defense to to react and get in rotation. Um, But with Russ, it's like... It's deja vu. I mean, this guy cannot resist it. And you're right, he
1: doesn't trust his body. And so he just, you know, the ego gets to him. Nobody's guarding him from 15 feet. He feels like, hey, this is our philosophy. We're supposed to shoot threes. I don't want to be the guy who lets the team down. And of course, that's exactly what he's doing by taking those shots. It was a brilliant but obvious defensive plan from the Lakers. I would continue doing that. Um, We saw teams do it during the regular season season it really screws up what Houston wants to do. And that brings me to my next question, Michael. Like, let's say he comes out at points of this series and struggles that badly again. I mean, the quad's not likely to heal itself. Um, you know, he, he can't play worse probably, but, you know, can he play a ton better? I think that's an open question. How do you handle Westbrook's minutes? I mean, what's your strategy? Do you just try to cut him down maybe to 20 and, you know, go to him before the game and be like, look, man, like, I, I we, we appreciate your valiance here and in trying to play through it, We've just got to kind of rejigger things. I mean, what's your approach?
2: I I don't want to mess with, like, Russell Westbrook's mentality. So I'm probably just, like, not even talking to him about any of this. Like, at the end of the day, you need him to— if you want to win the title, you need him to play well. You can't win the title without Russell Westbrook. You can't win the title with Russell Westbrook playing 20 minutes a night, um, even if they're an excellent 20 minutes. So I mean, to be honest, like I just probably roll with it, and like in the situation with Game Two, where I think D'Antoni took him out with about five minutes to go, um, maybe a little over that, and I I thought that that was it. I thought that that was the hook. He had five fouls at the time, um, and he just was atrocious. It definitely
1: should have been. It should have been for sure. Um, let's flip this over to the Lakers side, Michael. Um, sure. After Game One, they were pretty blasé. It was kind of surprising. Like they didn't seem surprised by the loss. I mean, Houston looked really good in game one. They were just kind of rolling with the punches. Then after game mm-hmm. two, obviously they felt like they had restored order and LeBron's feeling pretty calm and everything else. Is there something that they should be worried about that they're not worried about? Um, I guess I ask this question because we are in the second round of the playoffs. Houston is one of those teams that we've kind of said, hey, if anyone's going to pick, you know, play spoiler here in the second round, it could be them. Harden did look awfully comfortable in game one. And yet here are the Lakers just kind of like, yeah, you know, we got this. No problem. Um, do, you, do you see something they should be concerned about?
2: <laughs> I mean, I don't think they should be content at all. Um, like, watching game two, they had this big lead that was because Markeith Morris hit more threes in the first half than he had in the entire postseason heading up to that point. Um and All in
1: the span of like two and a half minutes, too.
2: Yeah. And so you have this lead. You lose this lead because the Rockets are basically just doing what the Rockets do. They're taking a bunch of threes and making a bunch of threes. And they have, uh, you know, I wrote this piece for 538 that uh, should be up by the time listeners are listening to this. But I, I wrote this piece about their new starting five and just how excellent they've been on the defensive end and kind of some struggles on the offensive end with Westbrook and fitting him in. But that defense uh in the starting five is like excellent. And Mike Dantoni is playing that lineup quite a bit. So if you're like if you're the Lakers, you're not you're still not generating good shots. I mean you're generating good shots, but like they're not <sighs> how do I like word this there? You're
1: you're basically saying like, look, Markeith Morris is not a sustainable source of offense, right? And so like, if that's when you're looking at your best, you still haven't proven it, right?
2: Right. And then also, you know, Anthony Davis, who, look, there's no answer for Anthony Davis when he's on 10, when he has it going. But the shots that he takes, they're like, so difficult from the mid range, where it's just like, the 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 like the degree of difficulty on these shots that he's hitting like you're just waiting for them not to fall which eventually you would think they won't I mean PJ Tucker is just busting it um, in these one on one matchups and forcing really tough looks so if those don't fall at the clip that they are which is in my opinion unsustainable as good as AD is and you know if Russ doesn't like, just give the ball to the Lakers repeatedly and let them throw lobs in transition, then this outcome is completely different. Like, I, I think these teams are way closer than that. I think they have no answer for James Harden at all. And so, if Dantoni wanted to just like fold Russell Westbrook and be like, all right, we're like, we're better off without you, which he won't do. Like, what are you gonna do if you're the Lakers? Who are you gonna double off of? It's just gonna be like wide open three after wide open three, man. Like, I don't know, like, that's what it comes.
1: That's what the series comes down to. How much can they wean their non-shooter off the court so that they can have the space they need for Harden to go nuts and for their offense to look like it did during that third quarter where they were just absolutely rolling, right? And. It's such a tricky power dynamic. I mean, D'Antoni always wants to stand by his superstars. That organization caters to its superstars. They have so much riding on the Westbrook trade and all of it. Um, it would be such a gutsy decision to just, you know, like to, to reduce his minutes, especially in important moments, mm-hmm. uh, for the benefit of Harden. I'm not sure that they're built for it, you know. I'm calling them out right now, Michael. Prove it to me. Wean yourself off Westbrook if he's struggling. Let's... let's uh Let's see it happen in in front of our eyes. I'm not sure they're going to be able to do it. I, I worry that could be their fatal flaw. Um, but I, I like your points a lot about uh, Davis's offense. You know, look, some nights it's there and he's incredible. Some nights it's not. And that's the kind of risk you take with some of the shot selection that he's involved with. My last question for you on this series, though, actually goes to LA's other star because we saw late in game two, a real downhill command from LeBron, right? Where he's really kind of getting to the basket, you know, getting uh, scoring opportunities for himself, setting up his teammates. It was like, you know, it's winning time. And we saw kind of that classic vintage playoff LeBron be able to get to the foul line, kind of do whatever he wanted and take control, assert himself. That might scare me almost as much as the Westbrook situation Um, If I was Houston, because I think PJ has done a great job and no one's going to do a better job on AD over the course of a series. Like you have to feel very confident with that matchup, right? Mm -hmm. Is what can Houston do to prevent that playoff LeBron we saw late in game two from sort of Mm -hmm. being like the deciding factor in the series? Like, is there anything they can do or they just have to hope that LeBron uh, gets tired and fatigues and, and doesn't have it every single night? I mean, what are you hoping for there?
2: I mean... What can you do to stop LeBron James? Uh, look, I would be a age-old millionaire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would have all the answers if I knew that one. Um, Come on, Michael. This is what we pay you for. I mean, you I, are the, the, the <laughs> brilliant analyst who we, we need some help.
1: I guess what I'm saying is you're very um, still confident in the Rockets, which I love. You're not. Uh-huh. You're not folding here. No. And you mentioned how scared you were for your Celtics when OG hits that shot, when LeBron is just parading to the stripe and getting whatever he wants in the fourth quarter. Aren't you getting a little bit nervous? Aren't you like, "Uh-oh, this isn't looking so hot."
2: A little bit, but nothing is like when I watch the Celtics cuz there's like a, the fandom element makes me completely irrational. When I watch the Rockets, I'm I'm not a Rockets fan. I just think they're really good. And I look at how like if LeBron wants to play the way that he did at the end of uh, game, uh, at the end of game two, then you're probably going to have to be small as the Lakers and the small Lakers. I-, I don't know. I just I'm not really thinking that they have it defensively to slow like the hard charging Eric Gordon drives and just the general aggression from Harden and. I don't know. I just, I think that like at the end of the day, they, that the Lakers can't stop like the Rockets. And so what so LeBron does in the offensive end is kind of, kind of moot. Right.
1: I guess your, your answer here is, um, you know, if we can't stop LeBron, you can't stop Harden essentially, which makes yes. it for a fascinating series to see which one of these superstars is able to kind of like pull out on top. Obviously if Harden gets it done, that's the signature victory head to head of his postseason career. Right. And, um, I, I think that, uh, He'll have something to say about the rest of the series, by the way. I don't think people need to be writing off the Rockets just yet. Harden has looked pretty comfortable, especially in game one. Um, and they were able to really crank things up in that third quarter of game two, which is what would scare me if I was the Lakers. Because, uh, you know, Houston, when they get rolling like that, it's it's just very difficult for any team to keep up. All right, let's uh, close off here with, uh, you know, four questions about Clippers and Nuggets. I'm going to start with maybe the uh, the juiciest one, the trolliest one. Uh, Patrick Beverly last night accused Nikola Jokic of flailing like Luka Doncic and with that incredible (laughs) uh, way of his that manner of his Beverly was able to piss off not only Nuggets fans but also Mavericks fans and really general NBA fans in in uh, you know overall who are saying come on Beverly you're flailing all the time you're hacking people all the time you're one of the the biggest misbehaviors on the court in the entire league yes Um, I guess my takeaway is is or my my question for you is: Was Beverly right? Is Jokic a flailer? Is he a flopper? Or was this just a mind game that uh, seems like it worked pretty well?
2: This is some gamesmanship by Pat Beverly, if I've ever seen it. I mean, sure, Jokic flops, uh, Luca flops. This is the NBA, man. Like, <laughs> who doesn't flop? Um, I think it generally all evens out. I think that uh, at the end of of Game Three, um, like Zubac had. A right to be outraged at a couple of those of those uh, those late fouls that were called on him. Um, where Jokic is just like a really brilliant person in terms of just like hooking his arms and and clipping guys and um, like initiating contact, but making it look like he's the one getting fouled. So I I, I was empathetic to Zubac, but like at the same time. Montrezl Harrell is just, like, clearly shoving Jokic when he's out on the perimeter running a dribble handoff, like, and getting called for foul there. Like, I don't know what you want Jokic to do, you what you want the refs to do. Um, no, the Nuggets were like, what?
1: Like, look at the free throw disparity. Like, you guys are shooting way more free throws than us. That's why, to me, it just comes back to a troll. Like, I think that they were frustrated at those late game calls. It was a clever way for Beverly to avoid criticizing the officials and, and drawing another fine because he just got fined uh, you know, after I think it was uh, game two for going after the refs and, and getting himself ejected. So I think this was a really a case of trying to work the officials by pointing the finger at Jokic. And I think it's also just a big brother move, right? I think the Clippers feel like, look, the Nuggets are a little bit scrappier, a little bit better, a little bit tougher to put away than they expected, mm-hmm. um, especially after that game one blowout. So now it's time to play the psychological games and try to get into their heads and get them thinking and put them back on their heels and kind of, you know, put them in their place, quote unquote, um, just as a way to, to maybe uh, take some wind out of their sails. I appreciate the move by Beverly. I mean, he's just a fantastic quote in general. He's, and he's also emblematic, I think, of the Clippers right now, where I feel like they're the villains of the bubble. Uh, <laughs> would you agree? Like, they, they seem like the self-cast villains of the bubble.
2: That's an interesting way to put it. I mean, they're not very, like, likable. And maybe that is because Kawhi Leonard is just this, like, machine who has no emotion at all. And Paul George, like, I just wouldn't use the word likable to describe Paul George. I think he consistently puts his foot in his mouth and... I am not referring to any of the mental health stuff at all. This is this is giving yourself a nickname. This is uh going after Dame Lillard for no reason on social media. This so it's like all that stuff is just not cool and you you, throw you don't in- need to
1: defend it or explain it. I think it's it's pretty self-evident at this point. I try to yeah. defend Paul George as much as I can, but I also see the point that he doesn't He's not very likable. It's just kind of <laughs> how it is. Um, no. Well, can I ask you on this, though? Speaking of Paul George, my next question for you from this series would be do we have to start putting some respect on his name in terms of how he's playing? Because he had 32 in game three. Um, you know, Kawhi had some moments, but he also wasn't that dominant takeover guy necessarily in game three. He's had some really nice flashes throughout these playoffs. I'm not trying to say, oh, Paul George has taken the team from Kawhi or anything like that, but. This was a big game. The Clippers needed it. They were down early. Um, there was some tension. Are they going to be able to pull this thing out? And Paul George kind of stepped up for them, didn't he? And and I feel like the people who the same people who don't enjoy liking him or rooting for him also might be a little bit overly reluctant to give him credit. Do you agree?
2: Paul George was ridiculous in Game Three. I mean. Total boss, uh, especially in the second half during spots where it looked like, like, I was watching that game just staring at the score, wondering when the Clippers were going to wake up, and being like, if the Clippers lose this game, like, what are we even doing right now in the bubble? Like, Like, this team that's just, like, the championship favorite would be down to the Denver Nuggets? Like... Wild. Um, and he just wouldn't let them go away. He hit some really difficult shots. He was super aggressive. He was guarding Jamal Murray and bothering him the whole night or, or vast majority of the night when Kawhi did not have that responsibility. So. Like, Paul George was uh, was absolutely tremendous, and you have to tip your cap to him, and he really stepped up in terms of what the expectations always were for him as the, the 1A to, or I guess the 1B to Kawhi's 1A or whatever it is. Um, so, he, I mean, he was just tremendous. And if he continues to play like that, that's, I mean, that's just why so many people think that the Clippers, their ceiling is has not even been met yet.
1: For sure. Let me ask. Let's close this off with two final questions uh, from this series. And uh, the first
2: one will be pretty easy. Are the Nuggets toast? <laughs> no, man. I'm not. I'm not giving up on them yet. Um, they were in Game Three. Jeremy Grant had, I think, three shots near the end. That had those been launched by Jamal Murray or Nikola Jokic, it might have swung the series the other way. Um, stop,
1: stop right there. What if they were launched by Malik Beasley? Did you ever, did that thought go through your mind? You know, remember at the trade deadline, they move him because they know they're not going to pay him this summer. And I think he winds up on Minnesota. Was that a spot where they're trailing in that game? They need to get back into it. You plug him into that corner. Does he hit that shot?
2: No, I'm not going to say that because, I mean, Jeremy Grant has been terrific and he was terrific in that game seven and that game six and just in the comeback against Utah. Um, I think of actually. Yeah, but more he about, did.
1: He did chuck three straight bricks. I know he, he
2: did. Up. He did. He did. He did. But I think more about um, Will Barton, who's actually like a player on the team still, and great call. What he would do offensively in a spot like that, and just how how much more he would stretch out the defense and and just be another option. Um, but like, if you're Grant, I mean, some of those shots, I haven't gone back and rewatched them. I just remember seeing them in real time being like, this is just not what you want if you're Denver. Like, this is, this is go time. This is game three, like, series tied. Like, Jamal Murray needs to be taking these shots as he did during the, the, the in the first round and, and to, to advance them to where they are now. So... Yeah, no, I I do I I mean like I do not think that that Denver is completely toast. I think that they've been badly outplayed in the fourth quarter in this series. Um, their point differential is just it's not looking great. Their defense is still in the series, kind of what it's always been in the bubble, which is just atrocious, and um, that's not a sign of optimism. But Jokic has played really well. I think that he has a matchup advantage. Um, I think that. That Murray, honestly, like when we talked about him becoming this star before our very eyes uh, in the first round, it was like a very nice story. Now he's like kind of doing it with Kawhi Leonard on him, like he's blowing by Kawhi Leonard to get to the basket and finishing. That's well, there's it's that like,
1: there's that ankle check on Kawhi too, where he stopped and popped uh, from the perimeter. I think it was move. game two, yeah. and Kawhi mm-hmm. went flying. I mean, shades of Iverson and Jordan. I mean, I. You know, a little bit.
2: (laughs) I'm I'm honored that you uh, would compare Kawhi Leonard to Michael Jordan. I don't know why I use the word honored, but I'm surprised. Only
1: only in Jordan's lowest moment would I make that comparison.
2: Yeah. Um, So no, I'm not giving up on Denver yet. I certainly would be still pretty surprised if they actually won the series. But this is a real team, man. Like and offensively, they have real weapons and i real quick like shout out to michael porter jr for that dunk which wow i I, like what was it like watching that in person so it was
1: crazy because i just randomly had a floor seat for that one usually in that arena they they have us up on these um a little bit further back and up uh raised off the court So, and it was right in front of me that it was on the hoop, like directly in front of me. So I basically was level with the ground. Michael Porter Jr. seemed like he was 26 feet in the air. Like, I mean, I have like, just from that angle, it was so trippy. He seemed so far off the court. And there's actually a picture of a NBA photographer took from that sideline angle, where it does have that same effect, like that low angle shot where he's just like flying through the air. That dunk was wild. There's been a couple of dunks. Jalen had one, actually, last night, too. yes, yes. I'm glad you brought that up. It feels like they're almost using, like, moon shoes or something, you know? Like, these guys are just flying off the court. So, yeah, there's been a couple of those, but... uh, that one was the best dunk of the bubble to me. Uh, just how pure it was, and the Clippers were so mad there was no foul call. And it's like, come on, guys, we can't spoil the, the highlight by calling a charge in that situation. No, that's not uh, despite despite Mondrez Harrell's best efforts. Hey, my, I'm actually with you on a lot of what you're saying about Denver. I don't want to write them off. I do think the Clippers have taken control here. It wouldn't shock me if they won in five. It also wouldn't shock me if they won in seven. They've just been. That kind of shaky, that kind of up and down. You mentioned a little bit earlier about how you're waiting for the Clippers to kind of flip the switch or kind of like get serious. And I feel like they actually are probably the most complacent team still in the bubble. Maybe it's because they're the most talented. Maybe it's because they're the deepest in their view. They feel like they have the most kind of like leeway to, to kind of play with games. But the level of intensity that, that's being played at in the Eastern Conference uh, and even in that Lakers-Rockets series, to me, it's just higher than the Clippers series. Um, and maybe they don't feel threatened by Denver. Maybe they're just playing with fire a little bit. Uh, Doc Rivers has mentioned uh, you know this kind of being a persistent issue with this group. And all of this leads me to my last question, which is this. I mean, to me, if you look at Miami and Boston, those teams are playing very cohesive, very hard, but they lack the championship experience among their main guys. You look at the top two West teams right now. I'm going to call them Lakers and Clippers. Um, they have that championship experience with guys like Kawhi and LeBron, but they haven't had that same level of cohesiveness and you know max effort level and consistency since they've been in the bubble. I'm curious now that we've seen like almost what almost two months of bubble play here. Does one? attribute matter more than the other, like, you know, now that we're in the bubble, there's no home court and some of the typical like playoff structure um, stuff goes out the window. Would you rather have a team that has the championship experience going forward here for the next couple of rounds? Or would you rather have a team that's shown the cohesiveness and the max effort level and that kind of stuff? Like which one of those things to you is going to wind up winning out here in the bubble?
2: I think it's cohesion. Um, I mean, this is like a a, a long-standing, unanswerable question. Yeah.
1: This is like a philosophical debate, you know, to be yeah. or not to be. Like, like I mean, there is no right answer. This isn't like the question, hey, should the Rockets play the Westbrook less? Like, yeah, obviously, right? It's not one of those. Um, but I'm just, you know, curious as you're watching this play out. To me, it does feel like the cohesion might be a little bit more important than a typical year and that the championship experience might be a little bit less important than a typical year. But I don't know if I actually firmly believe that or if I'm just being you know caught up in this moment where Miami and Boston are looking really good right now
2: yeah I also think like you know I think every team you could say does not have a like cohesion quote-unquote advantage maybe just like from relative to last season the closest thing would would obviously be uh, the Toronto Raptors and they lost their best player plus Danny Green Um, but like the Celtics, even, um, you know, they're dealing with Gordon. They added Kemba Walker. Um, they have rookies in the rotation. You have even Denver, who is a team that has a lot of continuity. Um, they don't have Will Barton right now. They basically added Michael Porter Jr. here for the, uh, like, he's a recent phenomenon. So, a lot of these teams, to say nothing of um, Russell Westbrook replacing Chris Paul and LeBron and AD and Kawhi and PG and all that. Like, I don't think that a lot of these teams have any real, like, quote unquote, cohesiveness to lean on right now. And some are just dealing with the circumstances better than others or will deal with it better than others. And they're playing more together. Um, but I think it is just like a, 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 an issue that every team has to deal with right now.
1: I'm with you. Upon further reflection, I'm just going to ride with my Western Conference teams. Championship experience is what matters. LeBron (laughs) and Kawhi are going to be the guys who kind of pull through here and take care of these little Eastern Conference juggernauts who are trying to uh, make some noise, but maybe they're not completely ready. Well, this is... We'll see. We'll see if that's how it plays out. That's the traditional narrative. And I think that we've seen an awful lot of traditional narratives flipped upside down here during the bubble and so we should be prepared for you know basically every eventuality i'm finally starting to wrap my mind around that uh, you know some of these spoilers could wind up uh, going the distance we'll see all right michael that was a pretty thorough recap of all four series as they stand we're going to be back later this week i would guess with a couple of these teams officially going home and, and maybe uh, you know a deeper dive into an Eastern Conference Finals preview, potentially. Um, until then, guys, email us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. Tell us what you agreed with, what you disagreed with, um, where we're idiots, where we're right. We love to hear all of it. And also, check us out on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review. Tap five stars and leave us a a review. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. If you're not following Michael on Twitter and Instagram, at MichaelViaZinVictaPina, you are missing out all sorts of great columns, contents, features, interviews. They've been coming nonstop from Michael. So be sure you check those out. I'm on Instagram at ben.goliver on Twitter at ben.goliver. Check out my newsletter this week on the dreaded Boston Celtics. We'll have all sorts of playoff coverage on washingtonpost.com sports all week long because we're in to the heart of the playoffs right now. And it feels so great. All right, Michael, until later this week, I will talk to you.
2: Talk soon, right. Ben.
0: I'm Katya Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico
2: Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.
0: Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org Slash for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.